I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part 70 in the series, The Gospel of Matthew. Somehow, a certain wave of the Christian movement became convinced that what you believe matters rather than what you do. But the Bible has no idea how to separate those things. For Jesus, what you believe is evidenced by what you do, and what you do reveals the truth about what you believe, and there are consequences for both. If you've ever been in a courtroom, what a weird way to start, right? If you've ever been in a courtroom or uh, at least seen a recording of one or if you've even seen like a depiction of one in a film, you know that defendants, the accused, that is, they all react differently when they are condemned guilty by a judge. Some of them, their eyes bulge and their jaws go slack, bewildered or pretending to be. Some erupt into tears, some collapse, some beat their heads against the table in front of them, some swear at the judge, or they roll their eyes, or they affect indifference or contempt. Most of us understand the premise of actions with consequences, at least intellectually, but it's all very different when you're actually facing those consequences. And sure, there are momentary lapses in judgment, but we get, for the most part, that if we do certain things, good things happen, and if we do other things, bad things happen. And yet, somehow, very few of us live as if we are constantly aware of that reality in the grand, long-term sense. Few of us live as if we are aware of our own mortality in the day-to-day sense, that this part of our story, life in the here and now, will end at some point, And that when it does, there will be consequences. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles. If you have them, feel free to use the app if you have that, to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25. Matthew 25. A few things have happened in the world since we've been in our study of Matthew, one first century biography of Jesus. Very serious things, things not to be taken lightly. So... We haven't been in it for a while because we set time aside to talk about the whole pandemic thing, and then we set time aside to talk about racial justice and reconciliation. And though these were and are very important things that were and are deserving of our attention and focus, and though the world often feels as if it's uniquely unraveling at this time and in this place, it's actually always been this way. Things have been broken for a very long time. And in the midst of that brokenness, a world that seems to unravel forever, disciples of Jesus have still set themselves to the teachings of their master to learn his way of life and then to put that way of life into practice. And that's what we're here to do in the midst of a world that seems to be unraveling. In the mouth of madness or otherwise, we are here to learn the teachings of Jesus and to put them into practice. Now, when we last read from Matthew, we read something called the little apocalypse. If you can remember, Jesus, it must have been months, uh, months back now. The idea was that Jesus starts to give this little sermon. He predicts uh, the destruction of the temple in AD 70, something that no one could believe was coming. Somehow he knew, and it actually came to pass. He used all kinds of strange apocalyptic language to describe something. And then we talked about the way that Jesus was predicting things that were in his future, but that are now long in our past, and that this has been famously, and I think tragically, misinterpreted to be a sermon about the end of the world, the end of the space-time continuum. 
when we talked about the strange invention of a concept called the rapture, which came around 1830, relatively new in church history, and how it eventually proliferated in America and in popular culture. But we also talked about the way that just because Jesus, I don't think, talked about stuff from, you know, the Left Behind books, that doesn't mean that he doesn't talk about final judgment. In fact, at the end of chapter 24, where we left off, Jesus starts to talk about something called that day with a capital T and a capital D. The destruction of the temple, all the ensuing horror, you'll see that coming, Jesus said. You can actually kind of forecast it. You can read the warnings. But this other day, this other day that day, you won't be able to predict it at all. You won't know when it's coming. Jesus says, I don't even know when it's coming. And he goes on in chapter 25, which I'll have you know is the end of his entire teaching ministry as it is presented in Matthew's gospel. After this, Jesus' story will climax in a horrifying way, but not before he talks one more time about that day. This week, the idea is to cover Jesus as he talks about bridesmaids and bags of gold. And then next week, he'll talk about the uh, goats and destruction. So let's read from Matthew chapter 25, beginning with verse 1. You guys all right? I, <laughs> I'm assuming that you're saying stuff. I can, thank you, Kristen. I can hear you. It's like, even from six feet apart, all through when we're setting up and everything, and we're trying, following all the rules, people come up to you and they all sound like, like Bane. And then we, what? And you, you get the idea. All right, Matthew chapter 25, verse 1. Jesus says, At that time, meaning that day, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied. There may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly, I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. Verse 14, again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one, he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I've gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come, share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I've gained two more. 
His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. The reward is exactly the same as the first. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid. I went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here, this is what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I've not sown and gather where I've not scattered seeds? Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has 10 bags. For whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There are about 148 scenes or unique stories in Matthew's biography of Jesus. In the academic world, we call them paracopes. Of those 148 paracopes, 60 of them deal with or refer explicitly to the concept of final judgment, which is almost half of the scenes in Matthew. Final judgment is the idea that eventually all of us will be held accountable for the things held accountable for the things that we said and the things that we did. So you can see why this is an unpopular concept. Here, Jesus, the artist, uses parables, which are short stories laden with metaphor and mystery to draw the listener in and to affect the heart, the mind, and eventually the way of life. So you get a story about bridesmaids. You get a story about investment. And then after this, next week's text, you'll get a story about goats. Each story is a lesson in how to wait well. In the story that preceded this one, Jesus said, look, things are going to get bad, and that's just the start of it. We are en route to that day, a day when God will set the world to rights, but not before we are held accountable for everything. So what you say and what you do not only has a tremendous impact on the here and now, it does, but it also shapes the future, your future, final judgment. Jesus says, look, you don't know when the end will be. I don't know when the end will be. But in the meantime, you're not just sitting here white knuckling it, waiting for heaven, waiting for someone to get you out of here. There's stuff to do and you will be held accountable for what you do. That's what these parables are all about. The first one is about bridesmaids. Now, this is a caveat. It seems like a no-brainer to us. They're just characters in the story. But Jesus sets the stage of his parable with women as the lead characters. This is yet another way Jesus creatively elevates women in a time when they were seen as less than, even more so than today. In the story, the women, the main characters, bridesmaids, are waiting for a bridegroom to return. The bridegroom in the metaphor is Jesus. I'm sure you picked up on that. The bridesmaids are those who love and serve him. The bridesmaids have lamps, which in this case enable them to wait well. They enable them to see in the dark and kind of endure that time of waiting. But because of decisions made by each of those bridesmaids, some of their lamps don't last the wait. They are ill-prepared and they do not wait well. Jesus is actually tapping into an ancient Jewish teaching tradition from the wisdom literature of the Hebrew scriptures in which both wisdom and folly are anthropomorphized and depicted as women. You have lady wisdom and mistress folly. This is a parable of contrast. And it's not Jesus' most complicated metaphor. It actually translates pretty easily to the way we still talk about salvation. 
These aren't outsiders. These are not people who are the crowds. They don't know about Jesus at all. There are bridesmaids. They know the bridegroom. They have lamps. They've been placed in the wedding party. These are insiders. And that's why this parable is so sobering. It's not enough to just just have the lamp at all, to be in the wedding party, as if a single experience or a prayer determines judgment. It's not enough for the lamp to burn bright while it burns bright, as if once lit, it will never go out. Once saved, always saved. The lamp needs oil. It needs attention. It needs perseverance, and it can go out. Because in this story... The wait is longer than expected, which is kind of interesting because in chapter 24, if you could remember back that far, Jesus was talking about how it would be sooner than anyone expected. He didn't suddenly change his mind. He's actually making a point with that dichotomy. Bruner says it this way in his commentary of this passage. In the first parable, back in chapter 24, the Lord came sooner than expected. In this parable, he comes later than expected. However we calculate the return, we will probably be wrong. Better not calculate at all. And suddenly, the bridesmaids, whose poor decisions have rendered them unprepared for the return of the bridegroom, they're pleading with the others for someone to do something. Hey, give us some of your oil. But then, on the metaphor's terms, if you have a whole group of bridesmaids unprepared for the bridegroom, he would find no one prepared to meet him. No one would have a lamp. No one would be thoughtful of him or considering him seriously. So they run off to get more oil, and when they finally make it back, it's too late. The language is really striking and kind of scary. The door was shut. And Jesus says, that story is just like the one that follows, wherein a master entrusts his servants with resources, and eventually he comes back. Now, my translation calls those resources bags of gold, but specifically, he gives them talents, which was the greatest unit uh, of accounting in Greek money, something to the tune of 10,000 denarii, which is a lot of money. For comparison, if you can think all the way back to the parable of the workers in the vineyard, uh, they were paid one denarius for a day's wage. Now you've got 10,000. So it's a lot of money. Anyway, you slice it, outrageous amount of money entrusted by the master to his respective servants. Now, Bible scholars have interpreted the talents several different ways. Remember, the whole thing is a metaphor. So Jesus intends his hearers to puzzle over and try to work out the symbolism. Some argue that the talents represent one's God-given gifting, your vocation, your ability. It's basically the disciple's aptitude. Some get more than others in the story, which is something that we all know, but we don't like to admit. People are designed quite differently, and depending on your God-given personality and capabilities, some are more capable of widespread or long-lasting impact than others. The modern everyone-gets-a-trophy mentality recoils at such a thing, the suggestion that some people are better at some things than others. But the only reason for that is because we often assign personal value to impact and influence. And thus, we conclude that if some are more talented or capable than others in some ways, then some are more valuable than others. But that's not how God's economy works. Notice, there's a difference in the amount of talents, but everyone is given something. All of them are servants of the master, not more or less so based on the amount of talents given. Personally, I find it freeing. There will always be someone better than you at the thing you badly want to do. That's fine. I think this is one reason I can never get into sports. I find serious competition hilarious, the idea of really caring. Um, Serious personality flaw of mine, I'm admitting before everyone gets mad at me, if I ever play a game with someone who turns out to be really competitive, I find myself trying to sabotage 
the game. My own team, whoever, just because it's funny. Antagonizing competitive people is too easy. It's too fun. Nom, 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 nom. It's delicious to see people freak out over a game. My friend Bethany, who often comes to teach for us, is really competitive. And we've just learned over the years it's best if we don't play games together. It's better for our relationship. How did we get here? Oh, right. Some argue that talents represent ability, capability, aptitude. And there's always someone who's better than you. Others argue that the talents represent time. Some of us will be around a relatively long time and others a relatively short time. Either way, there is work to be done within the margins of the time that we have. Another way of understanding the talents would be to interpret this particular aspect of the metaphor literally. That is, the talents represent money, which wouldn't be that surprising. It would be consistent with the amount of teaching, teaching time that Jesus dedicates to the topic of money. He talked about the way that we handle and spend and give money reveals the status of our heart before God. One scholar I read this week said plainly, few activities index true or false faith as plainly as the use of money. If it is about money, it's actually a subversive teaching. Theologian Stanley Hauerwas noted that if we do take the talents to represent literal money, then Jesus is not using the parable to recommend that we should work hard, make all we can to give all we can. Rather, the parable is a clear judgment against those that think they deserve what they have earned. With money, some end up with a lot, others with very little. Both of them and everyone in between, in, in between will be held accountable before God for what they did with that money. One more way of interpreting the talents would be as any opportunity at all, ability, time, money, whatever. What do you do with your vocation? What do you do with the interruptions that life throws your way? Who are you during suffering? How do you spend your free time? Does your bank statement reflect the kingdom of God? Would the people who know you best say the way you talk and interact with others reveals Jesus to the world? My personal take on the many interpretations of the talents is that all of them offer an appropriate way of understanding the parable. If one interpretation makes you particularly uncomfortable, probably apply that one most. General rule, I think, when processing the teaching of Jesus. So in the story, everyone is given various amounts of ability or time or money or opportunity or all of that. And then there's an open, meaningful period of time during which it is very important to make creative, active, wise use of those things. But that period of opportunity eventually comes to a close and the characters in the story have to answer for what they did and did not do with what they were given. Some of the master's servants have utilized the resources given in such a way that there's something to show for it. But one of them doesn't do anything. He goes out of his way to bury the bag of gold. He hides He's idle. He sits there as the days wane on. He plays it safe. He doesn't get his hands dirty. He risks nothing and stays comfortable. And when the master returns, he has nothing at all to show for the time he was responsible for the master's resources. Now, what's interesting is that according to the rabbinic law of Jesus' time, burying money was the safest thing to do. His audience likely knew this very well. In effect, Jesus is saying that the safe and popular, accepted, comfortable way of life will be condemned in judgment. Yikes. And notice in the story of the servants and the bags of gold, 
One servant gets five bags and earns five more. Another gets two bags and earns two more, significantly less than the first guy. And yet they're both applauded and they're both rewarded the same way when the master returns. They're both entrusted with many things. Ten bags of gold seems better to us than four, but the master evaluates and rewards faithful devotion, regardless of how impressive some people find the results. And then the last servant, the safe, comfortable, idle servant, he blames the master for his inactivity. He says, I knew you were a hard man, meaning you're the reason that I did this. And the master calls him out on his lie. If that were true, then why wouldn't you have at least invested the money? It seems weird, this guy blaming the master, but this happens so often that it's a kind of cliche. God didn't do more for me. God didn't resolve my theological crisis for me. God didn't speak louder. God didn't assuage my doubts. God didn't answer my prayer. It's God's fault that I was unfaithful. It's sort of the rallying cry of a whole generation of lazy deconstructionist propaganda. And I'm not saying that God is so cold and uncaring that he's not interested in your doubts or in talking to you or in your crisis of faith or your unanswered prayers. He cares deeply about all those things. But God is not Santa Claus. He is relational. So my kids, for example, they occasionally bark orders at Abby and me. They'll just blurt out, give me water. Or, you know, they make statements with no request in them. I'm hungry, like that. And Abby and I always tell them, don't talk to me. It infuriates me, but I, I try to keep my cool most of the time. Don't talk to me like that. One, it's unkind. I, I'm your dad. I'm not your waiter. You love me. I love you. Talk to me like you love me. Ask me for things. I'm happy to get them for you. Now, imagine if they were to blame me for their thirst or their hunger. I care more about my kids' needs than anyone on the planet, but I'm in relationship with them. I want them to learn love and respect and how to talk, not just to me, but to people in general. So that accusation wouldn't really hold water. And in the story, it doesn't hold water either. The servant comes to a horrifying end, and the small responsibility he was given is handed over to someone else, someone who's already proven that they can be faithful. So these stories are arguing that what you do matters not just what you've decided to believe in your heart. What you do matters. Scholar Scott McKnight writes this, sensitive theologians are sometimes nervous about the way Jesus talks. And sometimes we need to exercise a special caution, but we need to trust Jesus said what he wanted. No one is saved by works, of course, but everyone is judged by works because works are the inevitable life of the one who surrenders to, trusts in, and follows Jesus. You can avoid these texts if you wish, but anyone who spent much time with judgment texts in the Bible knows that the Bible teaches that our final destiny is determined by works. We may be saved by faith, but we are judged by works. Every judgment seen in the Bible is a judgment of works. Our problem is that our cultural paradigm for belief is in something that happens internally, which is why when people puzzle over whether or not someone else may, may or may not follow Jesus, someone inevitably always says, well, only God knows their heart, which is sort of true, I guess. But in the Bible, Jesus often and explicitly teaches that the way to tell whether or not someone is his disciple is not by saying, well, only God knows their hearts, but you just examine the things that they do outwardly. You can tell 
that way, Jesus says. The things they say, the way they spend their money, how they treat other people, especially the way that they treat those society has deemed as less than. The Bible has no paradigm for an entirely inward faith, which is why Jesus taught unapologetically, quote, if you love me, you will keep my commands. Not at all to say that you'll never screw up or that you'll never get it wrong or that you'll never go through a bad patch. That's inevitable, and the Bible's very clear about that. But that belief in the scriptures is active and relational, and you can tell when someone believes by evaluating the way that they live. To, to assess someone's belief, one simply evaluates the person's behavior and lifestyle. We already know this. If I ignore my wife or treat her horribly or deny her affection or fail to respect and serve and support her, but then I assure her that in my heart I love her dearly, any thinking person would rightly condemn me as a fraud. And yet we somehow imagine for ourselves a non-relational Jesus who is contented by a quiet belief, quiet belief in our minds and in our hearts, not exemplified in any way by the way that we live. It doesn't take a theologian to find the problems in that. Yes, you are loved by God without having done anything. And yes, the invitation to adoption, to acceptance, to salvation is free and unconditional, but it is an invitation to a dynamic relationship, not a static state of being. And Jesus taught that at some point, God will assess the things that you've done. The theme of final judgment has become a kind of cartoon caricature of doomsday preachers with sandwich boards, you know, the end is nigh, turn or burn, all that thing. I grew up in Georgia, Southern Baptist. It was the main theme of most church services. The obsessive overemphasizing of final judgment has had two devastating effects on the church as far as I can tell. The first one is that it made, it made us look real bad. That's never great. Nothing quite says good news like a stranger with veins bulging in his forehead as he screams about the end of the world and hell. Very inviting. Um, that used to be kind of the common perception of American Christianity, but not so much anymore, really. Now we know about those people. They're kind of lone nuts. They're on street corners. We don't really pay them much attention anymore. Most churches and pastors aren't really like that, by and large, especially not in popular culture. Now, when most people think of church, they think of like hip millennials and expensive outfits on theater stages soundtracked by an endless parade of identical bands with identical sounds and the emphasis is usually grace and healing and inspiration and victory and goodness. And that last part, those themes, that's not wrong per se, grace, healing, all that, fundamental aspects of the story of Jesus. But that's how the second devastating effect of the Judgment Day preachers snuck up on us. It seems that we've become overwhelmingly uncomfortable dealing with the fact that Jesus talked about judgment all the time. It made us overwhelmingly uncomfortable with the importance of evaluating our discipleship in light of our mortality. One of the pressing recurring themes in the teaching of Jesus is that this part of the story is going to end at some point, meaning you're going to die at some point. God is going to put an end to evil. He's going to set the world to rights. Maybe one thing will happen before the other, but this part of the story is going to end. Jesus taught that it was absolutely essential that we allow this knowledge of the future to inform our decisions in the present. Not that we would be defeated by our mortality, but that we would be inspired and provoked to action by it. Last month, I turned 37, and I've been thinking about how rapidly my life seems 
to have evolved and how I didn't actually consciously plan or prepare for the things that I suddenly find as part of my day-to-day rhythms. I didn't consciously plan or prepare for a six-year-old son asking me complicated theological questions, but here I am. And I'm realizing that there's a man that I want to be as a father and a husband and a friend that I want to be. And what it takes to be that man has changed over the years. And I won't become who God has asked me to be by just drifting through the unstoppable current of time until it's over. And I want to enter the second half of my life, however much of it I have, with an intentional focus on doing the things Jesus wants me to do and being the man that he's made me to be. It doesn't have to be spectacular or awe-inspiring or noteworthy. That was important to me at one point in my life, not so much anymore. It's enough now to love my family well or to navigate, navigate my vocation with discipline and faithfulness, to care for those who are close to me, to know them and to be known by them. Bruner says it well. He says, we tend to evaluate people by their work, but we will learn at the judgment who the people with the really responsible positions have been. Such positions often have nothing to do at all with titles, quantities, or appearances. For example, a parent who cares faithfully for a child or a child who cares faithfully for an elderly parent in complete obscurity and in seeming insignificance will be given accolades at the judgment. He goes on to say, the everydayness, the normalcy of all the parables that conclude Jesus' sermon has impressed commentators in stark contrast to the crises of the first half of the sermon where Jesus talks about war and heresy and persecution. The last half pictures people eating, drinking, working in the field, feeding households, going to weddings, doing enterprising work, the stuff, in short, of real life. This everyday last half is put to the service of Jesus' typically strong emphasis on living the good life in the midst of the real life. So I don't know what bringing enough oil or investing bags of gold, as it were, looks like in your season of life. You get to ask God about that. But I can tell you this. God has more adventure and goodness and risk in mind for your story than Instagram and Netflix, a nine to five and sleeping and repeating. I think we hear scary parables like these and we think, my God, if I don't get out there and become the next Mother Teresa or found a nonprofit or share the gospel with every passerby in the grocery store, then I'm that dolt who buried his master's money. And we scare ourselves out of whatever it is that God has for us. But that's not the idea at all. And if it were, I don't think I'd be able to tell you. I'm honestly so nauseated by the whole go-getter, type A, carpe diem, Instagram drivel. The closest thing I can get to seize the day is constantly reminding everyone that they're going to die. And more of that's coming in a minute. But the inspirational YouTube videos about how to seize your dreams or the Instagram photos of bathroom mirrors or hiking trails with captions about living on purpose and give me a freaking break. That kind of personality is is honestly pretty pervasive amongst pastor people and ministry leaders, which has made me a real bummer of a table companion in seminary classes or at like conferences and things. So pastors will sidle up next to me, ready to, you know, fan out the peacock feathers. And they ask, so so what's going on? Tell me about your ministry. How big is your church? Disappoint them immediately. Oh, small, real small. 
And then, uh, and then I just antagonize them on purpose. They'll be like, so tell me, what's, what's your vision to grow this year? None, no vision. I didn't say it was a mature part of my personality. My point is, God is not a go-getter Instagrammer asking you to compete with ridiculous tryhards. Maybe God does want you to start a nonprofit. I don't know. I venture a guess that for most of us, probably not. What's more likely is that he's inviting you to unlock the potential of your identity and calling, to become someone who is spiritually formed and mature, someone who is faithful and consistent, someone who is sober-minded, in touch with and in step with God's spirit, someone who does something with what they have and the time given. The invitation to steward your time well might mean a crazy, exciting, scary life upheaval, quitting your job, doing something radically different, maybe. But I can actually tell you what the invitation to steward your time definitely means for all of us. You ready for this? Meditate on the scriptures every day. Learn to pray all the time. Ask and listen to God's spirit about people and things in your life. Live by a code live by a rule of life, deliberately make time and daily rhythms for more spiritual discipline and less digital addiction or over-busyness or distraction. Raise your children with gentleness and love in the way of Jesus. Teach them the truth. Discipline yourself. Practice simplicity. Budget and give and be generous. Learn contentment. Learn to walk in justice and righteousness. Don't turn a deaf ear to the world's suffering. Ask God what can be done with your resources, your abilities, your season of life. Stop making excuses. Going from nothing to something seems intimidating. And willpower really only carries you so far. It's why we've built our entire church around the idea of practicing. It's a slow game. So as a place to begin... Whatever your season of life, my humble, humble invitation is to ask this. With what has the master entrusted you? Not in a far-flung hypothetical future. You might not have that. Right now, where you are, what has the master left under your care? Is it a dream, a vocation, an education, a family? It's certainly time and it's certainly your own spiritual formation. And then ask yourself, what will it take to care for that thing or those things in such a way that when the master returns, you can look him in the eye and say, my Lord, look and see, I did my best. He will be gracious with us in our inevitable failures, and he will be generous with us while we are under his care. He will be patient with us in our stumbling, and he will be gentle with us in his correction. But he will come and he will ask and we will give an account. What needs to happen so that you can say, I was not perfect, but I used every opportunity, Lord. I was the father or mother or husband or wife or friend that you asked me to be. I followed the path laid out for me. I worked very hard. I was awake, I was vigilant, and I was faithful. Maybe all that seems like a long list, but it starts somewhere. So start where the list starts. A new rule of life, a new rhythm, 
Maybe it's finally taking a scary step to get healing, to talk to someone, to confess something, or to see a counselor or a therapist. For a lot of us, breakthrough won't happen until we start there. Maybe it's changing things in a big way. Maybe it's just sharpening your focus right now. And we do all that not because a tyrant will make demands of us and threaten us with punishment. We do this because we love the master, because he has in mind to do us good. What will it take to care for the time we have in such a way that when the master returns, you can look him in the eye and say, my Lord, look and see, I have done my best. Jesus, Master, empower us by your spirit to become good and faithful servants. Let's pray together before we worship once again. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vancity financially at vancity.church/give.